Welcome to Master Runner. I'm your host, Mike Warren, and today I decided to travel overseas, specifically to Southeast England, uh, to meet an amazing individual by the name of Paul Comerford. Um, I first ran into, virtually at least, ran into Paul on um, one of the ultra running groups we're part of, and the thing that really stuck out um, was his photography, his some of his photos of of, uh, of running and him out there on these amazing trails just blew me away. But then reading some of his posts, um, which were very um, kind of deep, um, definitely carried a lot of emotion and and uh, and so forth. I knew the guy had to have um, some type of story, and indeed he does. So you're going to hear from him today. Um, you're going to hear his story, his uh, um, uh, long journey with running and most recently ultra running. Um, he is about to, on top of everything else, he is about to, at the age of 65, he is about to take on his first 100K in about uh, six weeks. So that's a big, big, big uh, thing for him. Um I wish I could be there to join him, but uh, anyway. Um, so I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, it definitely uh, was amazing to talk to him and hear his insight and his story um, and what he's doing at this, uh, what is becoming a very young age uh, and making me feel better, this this age of 65 and beyond. So um, hopefully you will be as inspired as I was when I uh, sat down to uh, to talk with him. So, without any further delay, here is Mr. Paul. Oh, and he's got a really, really cool accent, too. Better, Way better than mine. Here is Mr. Paul Comerford. Hey, Paul Comerford, how are you? I'm fine. I'm, I'm sat here on the island of Alonassos in Greece and uh, relaxing and training. Yeah, I hate you right now because uh, you're in Greece and I'm not. it's a good thing although the only thing i'll say uh, is it's a bit chilly they've had a cold spell of three or four days but now it's going to get very hot for the next three weeks that i'm here oh my gosh so quick background on um how i discovered you i um you know being runners we all discover each other through running one way or another and it was one of these groups i think it was trail and ultra running on uh facebook and I was seeing these crazy pictures, these beautiful pictures that some guy was posting overseas. And you live, your home base is where again? It's in, it's in England. It's in the south coast, uh, a county called uh, West Sussex, right on the English Channel. And it's uh, renowned for being the sunniest county in Britain. Yeah, so I was seeing these pictures and it's like, they, they were just beautiful. And then pictures of you running and just... You got some pretty wild outfits, by the way. I dig that because I'm all about the crazy outfits. I I, uh, I should send you some pictures from my last race. I'm all about going crazy for these races. But, you know, these pictures blew me away. And then I started reading your post and I know you're an author and we'll get into that a little later. But you clearly have a story. And um, and part of the reason I put this whole podcast together is to make it more real and, and to make it um, so that other runners could connect with other runners through a story. Because yeah. most of us, especially in the ultra running world, I don't want to say we're sane people, but we 
we definitely, at least the ones that I've gotten close with have a story. Um, mine, you know, it was more of a kind of a dysfunctional childhood, abusive, um, the whole nine yards. And so my own little personal space with working out and, and running. And when I was younger, martial arts was my own kind of, um, it's always been the way I kind of sort things out, the way I kind of cope and, you know, things are kind of messy up here. I just yeah. go for a run and everything becomes clear. And I know you get that. So, um, but I, I've always been so fascinated by everybody else's story. So I'm really, really happy that I have you on here to fully capture the story. So thank you so much for coming on today. And I'm happy to be part of everything. And you've got, before I dig into it, you've got some pretty big stuff coming up that we're going to touch on later. You're going to tackle 100K at 65, which is at any age at 25 is mind blowing. So we're going to cover some ground there later too. And then I think you said earlier, the goal is 100 miles, which is just- Before I'm 70, I hope. Crazy stuff. So, and like I said, people like you inspire me and- um, and again, Thank I'm you. really happy to have you on. All right, so let's go back in history a little bit. You're 25 years old. You're living, as they say, the dream. You've got a wife and kids, and you see this guy named Ron Hill. Yep. So something changed on this day. Tell me, tell me what was going on in your life, and then tell me what this guy Ron Hill did. I know the answer, but I just want you to explain what happened, and then the impact this guy Ron Hill had on your life at that moment. Okay, well, I was 25. I was working for, uh, working for the government at the time in, uh, in defense, and all my contemporaries were getting bigger tummies, the same as I was. Uh, we all smoked, we were all knackered, and we all thought that was it. You got married, you had kids, you did everything else, and then you just shuffle off into death at some point in the hopefully more <laughs> distant future. You know, 60 years old was a, you, you were old and knackered, as we would say. <laughs> but then I decided that wasn't the case. Um, I, uh, I, 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 I remembered the 1970 Commonwealth Games in uh, Edinburgh. I watched it on the TV when I was somewhat younger, and Ron Hill came in and won the marathon in two hours 20. Two hours, uh, nine minutes and 24 seconds. And there was this little waif in a string vest running his heart out. And I couldn't fathom how anyone could run a marathon at under five minutes a mile pace or even that far at any pace. Crazy. And I, I, it stayed with me. He remains my hero. And once the running boom started in 1982, I decided to, that was it. I was stopping smoking, which I did on the 2nd of May. On the 16th of May, I started running. I didn't know how to run. I had just, uh, I, call, I guess you call them sneakers. I had flat bottom training shoes that were no good. Went out and did my first run, had blisters, thought that was how it, how it was. <laughs> but then once you've got that hook into you and all your workmates are saying you're crazy, your needs are gonna explode, <laughs> you're mad. And, and your wife is saying, goodness me, what's happening to you? I started to buy all the athletic magazines and I found out Ron Hill, had his own running company and he was still going. He had a streak of many years. So I got his autobiographies, the Long Hard Road, parts one and two, read them five or six times over. I've just read them again. He died a, a couple of years ago 
in his 80s with dementia, but what a man, what a man. And he stayed with me and I transferred his training techniques to me because I didn't know about Lydiard and any of the other great running coaches. So I invented my own way of training. And from, from that moment on, I went from being a bit heavy with no view on life apart from the fact I was going to get heavier and, and die like everyone else. Right. For the fact I became a runner and that was it. I've, I've run since then. I've just come up to 38,000, 38 and a half thousand miles. I was fast for a club runner. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I ended up running a, a 249.15 in London and I knew I could go faster, but that was always my fastest. Yeah. I managed a 118.13 half marathon, which was just under the magic six minutes a mile. But at my build, with all due respect, Mike, I mean, you're built like a racing snake. I'm built like, a, I'm, as I said, I'm, uh -huh. I'm, built, I'm built like a John Deere with, with a turbo boost. You know, I'm designed for heavyweights and fighting on beaches, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but I took what I had and did the best I could as the way I saw it. And it took me a long time to be proud of that 249 because I realized that I had fulfilled probably my potential. The following year in 1987, I was 86. Then in 1987, I went through halfway in the, the Amsterdam Marathon in 121.20, something like that seconds. So I was on course for a 246, 246 and bits. And then I got cramped. For the first time ever, I'd worn a singlet, a vest. It was a yeah. chilly wind in Amsterdam, and I got, I got cramped for the first time, and I dropped to eight-minute mining for three miles. Then it went, I near enough sub-six-minute mile for the last three miles, but I didn't quite do it. I did a two fifty-one, but that was it. After that, my life, my married life, fell apart a bit over several years, and um, I lost momentum. So my inspiration, yes, was Ron Hill. And from there, I learned about Ian Thompson. And of course, you've got, you've got Frank Shorter, the great American runners. You had a whole spate, uh, Boston Billy. Uh, and I got into very much into the American running. We, we produced fabulous runners. And then the African nations uh, started to come through. And I found the whole thing absolutely fascinating. So I continued running from 1982 at the age of 25 and continued uh, into older age. Uh, I, I got married. I was a father of twins at 20, got married at 18. And wow. uh, yeah, exactly. That's what I said. So, so, so Ron, I guess in some ways, it's always interesting what the catalyst is in, in our lives and, um, and when, when it comes into our lives. And so Ron seemed to enter a point in your life where maybe you needed it most. Yes. You needed, you needed, you just, you needed that inspiration to kind of break up whatever monotony was in your life. You were living kind of the way that, I, I've always said that life is, society kind of dictates what you should do in certain age brackets. And so yes. for the first 21 years of your life, you know, you grow, you go to school, you get a degree, you go work as a cog. <laughs> Some of us get a degree, I left school at 15. Right. Or you don't like it, but like, you know, society imposes this thing where it's like you build this machine, yes. you go to school, then you come out, then you get a job. And then, you know, in your twenties, you get married, you pop out a kid or two, you have a white picket fence, 
and you start tucking in your shirts and wearing your khakis and parting your hair. You're going to have to stuff. stop there because you're making me sweat. There's everything <laughs> that is now. Like... <laughs> what happened to the 60s, the revolution? We forget it we, because those young revolutionaries that we are that kick the tra- tra- kick over the traces. We were teenagers. We listened to rock and roll. Then all of a sudden we turn into these guys with side parties and uh, shuffle around being conventional. And I suddenly realized that I wasn't built that way. I, I similar to yourself. My background is uh, my father died when I was five. He was a war hero. He was a Japanese prisoner of war, built the death railway, died when he was young because of that. Oh my gosh. But my mother was preyed upon by a religious cult. And in the end, I had a terribly abusive childhood from the age of six or seven. And when she died, when I was a teenager, I was lost. I, I didn't know how to construct a human being. Mm-hmm. And I had a hatred for authority figures Mm-hmm. and a fear of authority figures. So convention, uh, I suppose Middle America is the same as our Middle, middle England. You have this convention of trying to aspire to greater things, which means wealth. The American dream, very much the same in Britain. You aspire to sort of upper middle class areas. And that is the most tedious thing that was ever invented. Yeah. I realized that I needed to rebel and be different. And I needed to heal myself. And running was my go-to place where no one could interfere with me. Mm. I was on my own with my thoughts. And all of a sudden, I could run five miles. And I thought, that's a long way to drive a car, a cycle, a bike. Then I could run 10 miles. And then I could run 15 miles. And at certain points in distance, the mind has to change from worries and convention to you, the self, the person you are. And that's always been with me. And I abandoned that. We'll talk about that a bit later in, in middle age. But that was the thing that made me. It was my barometer for who I am. Yeah. And if I could do that, no one could take that away from me. See, and I, I got I got to stop you on that point because that's powerful stuff. And I've said that forever because I, I can't believe you said it in, in those words because um, with your background, you know, and, and, and you and I talked before we got on today, you know, having that type of childhood and um, what you went through with your mother and like with my father, the abuse. And it was, it wasn't only the physical, it was the mental. It was always, my, my self-esteem was just taken away from me. And I always looked to initially martial arts as like something that it's a single person type of thing. It's just you, it's not a team, but I found something in martial arts and later running that nobody could take away from me. Like my father could say a lot of mean shit about me. He could, yeah. he, and it was, look, he's probably going to listen to this, but I'll, I've called him out a thousand times. He over and over, you're not going to amount to anything. All the, all these, you know, years of school, isn't going to do anything. You're worried, you know, so I heard it all. And, and it really, when a mother or father kind of says that to you, and then you have the physical stuff on top of that, the mental and the physical, it really, it just, it beats you down to a point where you're just, you're, you're clinging for anything, any type of life support. And so the individual stuff for me, the martial arts and later the running, and even now, like, you know, at 47, it's like, nobody can take this away from me. This, nobody's going to tell me that, you know, not that I'm great, but nobody's going to tell me that, you know, oh, you're an awful runner. Geez, you're not like, nobody, it's, it's not even the physical thing. It's just a mental thing for me. It's a place yeah. that I can go and challenge myself, even if the challenge is 
three miles, five miles, 50 miles, whatever it is, getting up early in the morning, having your coffee, going outside, getting it done, giving yourself a gift. And then the rest of the day can go to, excuse my friend, shit, but at least you gave yourself something special in the morning that nobody can take away from you. And so it was this, it's always been this place that I went to, especially with the running that was really where I sorted things out. It's where I kind of empowered myself. It's where I gave myself the self-esteem that was kind of taken away. And it sounds like for you, it's been the same thing that you, you took this upon yourself to give yourself something that had initially been taken away from you, right? Like Absolutely. It's, I'll, I'll tell you something about childhood. It's your mother that encourages you. It's your father that pats you on the head and say you have achieved. If you don't get that pat on the head, head you're lost, totally lost. Because it, it's, it's, it's not a culture thing. It's a primate thing. That's what primates do. You get your affirmation from, from your father, the paternal figure. That strength figure, it, it, it may be in marriage, it may be two women, but one of those becomes a figure that pats you on the head. The other one's the encourager. If your mother encourages and there's no father to pat, pat you on the head, you're gonna be lost mm. and you'll be looking for authority figures. And that's where you can get lost in ideology, religion, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Yeah, I'm an independent thinker and could never do that. I never really had the encouragement from my mother and certainly didn't have a pat on the head at the end of it. So I ended up with an instinctive fear of authority. What will people do? And I still had that up to five years ago. Mm. I didn't realize it, but I still did. So I developed something called a rage battery. And, and if, if I think you may understand what I mean, it's a battery where it's somewhere inside you, if you're gonna survive all that, you can get over the physical pain. Physical pain heals, like you said, but the mental pain remains for a long, long time. Mm. And you can never, necessarily get over the scars but you can bypass them or you can wear them with a little bit of pride because it shows the route to where you are as a map to show the survival the, the web of survival uh sorry about it. my phone keeps going off that's all right i'm deaf in my yeah. right ear now <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so ultimately uh it's that route of survival now that fear of authority means if you're not careful you can be led into an ideology that isn't healthy, whether it's something staunch political, no one should be staunchly one party or another. You should have an open mind. And in a democracy, we have the ability to say, I choose this party because 60, 70% of what they can give is what I'm agreement to. The rest of it, I can argue about. Locally, we can elect councillors that are more of our choosing rather than this solid ideology, which is insane. It's insanity yeah. writ large. Yeah. But that fear of authority can be overridden by the rage battery. If you're a kid and you've been through that, my rage battery isn't anger. I go out and smash everything. It's my anger at adults and people with authority without moral conscience. Mm -hmm. So I rage against the machine. Yeah. Just like rock and roll. Yeah. And that's when I plug in. When I have this fear of authority, what will people do to me? I can't do this. That's not allowed. I plug into that rage battery and say, to hell with you, you know, smacking the teeth off an offense, although I'm a non-violent man. Yeah. So that's a metaphorical smack in the teeth. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tough, but it's taken me a long time to realize that that rage battery has got me through to the age of 65 now. And uh, it's important for people to know that. And, and that's a part of what this podcast is about. 
And ultimately, it all comes down to running. That single physical thing that you own, that is yours and no one else's. Even if you run in a group, yeah, you're still that individual. It's your it it it's your own franchise. You know, it's your own business. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I I think um, I mean I've always thought the traditional kind of structure of life is um, you know a lot of people ride the emotional roller coaster of, of work or whatever. And I mean, we all do it. It's not that I'm preaching, but I don't, I certainly do because I'm still working and I still kind of, but if that's what your emotions are fully connected to hundred percent and you have no other way to deal with anything that, that can be a very, very violent, rough ride and absolutely running. I'm sure for you. And I know for me, it's what, balances things and so when the ride gets a little bumpy i know that it's okay because i got my own franchise the mike warren franchise the mike warren you know running franchise that i can just connect to and and give something to myself that nobody else can take away from me nobody can tie my legs together and well i guess they could prevent me from running i'd be kind of sick but you know what i mean like nobody can stop me from doing that unless i you know i mean god forbid i get some catastrophic injury which is like my biggest fear but like nobody can take away from you the fact that you lace up you put on these crazy shorts and these awesome outfits and you just go to these beautiful places and give yourself a gift every day I mean it's amazing we're talking in a linear way now because uh, we can solve everything with a run but you can't there's something else that comes with the way we are and the way runners can think because we're dedicated to what we do for our various journeys, various reasons, and it's always a, always a reason of self. We have a strong work ethic because of that. There's not many lazy runners when it comes to career. So if you're not careful, you can end up being so fit and active mentally and physically that you give too much to work. And that's the other thing to be careful of. Because if you are an employer and you've got someone who's fit and active and always bouncing around and full of energy, you'll get the work. It's, it's one of those things in a capitalist society where that's how it works. The lazy people don't get much. Mm. They, usually, they usually get the boss's job in the end. They, 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 <laughs> every, everyone gets promoted. Uh, what is it? Peter principle. I don't know. But everyone gets promoted one grade above their ability. Yeah. So, uh, as, a, as a runner, as an athlete, as someone looks after themselves, we have an ideology that can transpose into the workplace. And if you're not careful, you end up training too hard or giving too much. And that's uh, right now, I'm, I'm just about to go back to work in June because I've had uh, five months off because mentally I was shot. I, I, I had a fairly high pressure job and I forgot that my own rule. And the only thing that's got me through it is running because the machine I'm in, this body was fit and ready for when my mind is better, my mind has got a great machine to be in. And that's that's the other thing. It's it's about a good habit. So yeah, mental health, mental well-being, it's very anti-macho, very anti-male. But you and I have had this since childhood where anything abusive, anything negative can harm you. Your brain's an organ and it can get injured the same as any muscle. Yeah. So it's a case of looking holistically. So I don't know all the answers yet, but I'm close. Yeah, well, they join the club. None of us do. In fact, we come up with more questions every day, you know? So. Always, always. So I'm trying. So things, we started at 25. You're moving along. You discovered running. You discovered this guy, Ron Hill. Everything's great. You've got what, you, what your soul needed. 
But then at a certain point, 25-ish years down the road, you're 52, things are changing. Maybe the proverbial wheels are coming off a little bit. So you started at 25 rock and roll, as we say out here in the States. Um, it may be out there too. But then the ride gets a little bumpy around 52. So what was happening at 52 that... Well, I, I, I got divorced in uh, 1982. It was relatively amicable. Um, I think we'd been married. She was 17, I was 18, we had kids. And we were just two different adults. And in the end, it just didn't work. And sometimes might be miserable, you know, sometimes. So we split. At the start, it was an emotional mess. I didn't handle things very well, but I was still trying to construct myself as an adult male. I, um, my kids... I'm not sure if they suffered, but they understood that their father had left mm. uh, because it was the only way of keeping keeping some sort of stability. I ended up getting married again, was married again for two or three years. That was a huge error. Um, <laughs> and and I'll, I'll take responsibility for 50% of that balls up. But uh, we didn't split that amicably, but that was fine. We had no kids and it was just one of those things. Uh, I think the last thing I was told is, come up here, you're an arrogant prick. I thought, well, that's fair <laughs> I, I couldn't argue with that. I was probably not a pleasant fellow at the time. And then I, I lived on my own for a long, long time. Uh, on banked fitness, I started taking up triathlon, but I wasn't dedicated anymore. I was no longer knocking out fast marathons. I was, I was quick enough. I could still do a 37, 38 minute 10K at the end of a, an Olympic marathon um, triathlon distance. Mm. But I was living on borrowed time. So in my 40s, uh, I guess the booze got a hold of me. Uh, I looked good. I had long hair. I was in the 40s. I had a string of girlfriends. It was fine. But of course, I'd stopped training so much because I didn't need to. I was living the life. But no, I wasn't. And in the end, I found out that I was being pretty horrible to one or two girls, um, unkind. And I had a bit of an epiphany. And I thought, just because I'm an emotional wreck and I'm still trying to put myself together, who the hell am I to harm? Well, women can, can fall in love very deeply. Mm -hmm. And I found that I was like being unkind and that was a wake up call. And I thought, no, that's not, that's not nice. I'm, I'm not, that's not me. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up in a long-term relationship, still running, but she ended up being a heavy drinker and alcoholic. Mm. So at the age of 45, 50, I drifted from being a good fit sort of, uh, I don't know, 160 mm. pounds, 164 pounds. And I ballooned way up over the 200 pounds, started smoking cigars and I was shuffling around like a wreck. Mm. And of course that was the end to me. I, I can remember one day uh, I, I changed careers by then. I was, I was in a government job. I was doing audits in prisons and various places, fire risk assessments, things like that. And um, I looked at myself in a mirror in Oxfordshire and there was this mess, this, this wreckage with a red face, huge stomach, who still went out and ran and shuffled along at a slow pace. But that was just, um, I don't know what I was. And I thought, I can't get rid of this stomach. I can't get rid of this mess that's in front of me. What do I do? I gave up. I literally gave up. And then uh, my partner didn't like the fact that I was showing signs of rebellion against the lifestyle. Mm. And I stopped smoking cigars again. And I started to lose a bit of weight. And lo and behold, the person that I, I, I hitched my wagon to started to use that expression you used earlier. You are finished. You're nothing. Mm. I thought, where have I heard this before? 
Yeah. And of course, what did I do then? I slowly lost weight. She ran off with a guy from the prison, a manager. <laughs> she took the dog who I missed. And I was left, I, I kept the harm. I get all the, I, I had this big financial redundancy package from my previous career, gave her all that money so I could keep the house. And I was in a house with nothing, literally a couple of pieces of garden furniture, a bed and a TV and nothing. Yeah. And since then, I've never been happy. I, 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 yeah, I started running a little bit then a bit more and I got down to a reasonable weight, 180, 190 pounds. And then in the last, since mid fifties, when I hit 60, I thought, this isn't good enough. My health's still failing. What can I do? And then my Paspa too, uh, this, that's my wonderful lady, uh, Ange. I call her Paspa too because she's, in French, it sort of means skeleton key. She unlocks any problem. She's my constant companion, mm. as, as with Phileas Fogg and Round the World in 80 Days. She's my Paspa too. <laughs> She made me realize that I can do these things. And so I set in motion two things. I wrote a novel because I always wanted to write. Hmm. I write a lot of poetry. The, the novel was um, published last uh, a couple of years ago. It's doing okay. And I decided to apply everything I knew at the start of 2020 to Racing the Reaper Man. And that was to, I'd stopped eating meat. There's several reasons I've stopped eating, eating meat. It ain't good for you, Yeah. period. Yeah. It's even worse for the planet, period. Yeah. Okay, we're omnivores, but we don't need it anymore. And for the yeah. good of the planet, you know, we can get plant protein. So I, I, I do it a little bit of sustainable fish. The only thing in dairy I eat is a little bit of cheese, but the rest of it's plant-based. And I do still drink alcohol, but not in buckets like I used to. Yeah, and, and that, from- I, I actually went, uh, gosh, there's so many ways I can take this. I went plant, plant-based about eight years ago. And yeah. um and, you know, I'll get, you know, my mom, when I first did it, she was convinced I was going to die. I needed to have my red meat and stuff like that. I just cut it all out. And um, and it's funny because sometimes there'll be a debate with somebody and it'll be like, you know, you got to have your protein, you got to have your meat. And I'll be like, tell me how cows get theirs and tell me how pigs get theirs. Like, I don't see a pig you know, slaughtering squirrels to eat their muscle fibers or anything like that. If I have it right, I think they eat grains and stuff like that. And somehow they manage to get all the protein they need. So if a cow can do it, if a pig can do it, I think we can do it just fine too. And, and it's kind of- Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're a, uh, if, if you go into uh, not so distant sort of genetics, the the, the two to four percent of Neanderthal genes that we carry with us. Neanderthals needed that sort of thing. They lived in an Arctic sort of condition. They were hunter-gatherers, they ate a lot of meat. They, the fact is they died when they were 40 and they matured by the time they were 13 because they had shorter lifestyles. Notwithstanding that, they had to use the animals and the animal protein. They didn't have much else. We don't need that. We certainly don't need that. The planet doesn't need that. So ultimately there is a moral issue here. Yeah. We always talk about our rights, but who gave us human rights? Oh, we gave ourselves those rights, didn't right. we? <laughs> yeah, rights. We give ourselves, you, you have all your declarations of independence over there. What happened to the poor old Native Indians, you know, the Americans, the Native Americans now? You know, mm-hmm. They didn't have many rights. We're just waking up to the fact that in Australia, they're the Aboriginal people. 
actually they had an awful lot of rights and uh, who are we just because we've got a superior culture when it comes to technology to yeah. override that why should be we knocking down forests just to eat burgers mm-hmm. why do we americans generally eat too much hold yeah. on a minute so do we over here have you seen the size <laughs> of plates jesus i had a burger in houston airport once that nearly floored me and th- that was a starter you know people are uh, don't eat food out of buckets. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's a reason why you shouldn't eat food out of buckets, uh, and don't mush it up so that you don't chew it. You know, uh, I I don't understand that. Our our relationship with food is completely wrong. We never get weaned anymore onto proper food, but you know that because yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say after you finish your your hundred k, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, which I wish I could be there for because I would love to see it. Um, you're going to look at your, your, maybe you will, or maybe you won't. I know I did with my last race. You're going to look at your calories burned and you might be tempted to do that every day. You might be tempted to go all out. You're going to see that number and be like, yeah, this is my day. You know, I'm just going to go out and pulverize whatever I want. I know I did. Um, so I wanted like this idea, I wanted to connect with something you said earlier, which is the rebellion. And, um, so I know that. As old as we are, like even, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 47, I, I told you before, and, but we're, I'm still like, I, f- I still feel like a little six-year-old kid on the inside. And so certain things will trigger certain things from my childhood and trigger that rebellion and make myself push myself harder. And it's really weird to explain that you would think that the older we get, the more the internal emotional damage has kind of healed and things are kind of sorted out but there's still a ton of triggers that i feel like if they haven't gone away yet at 47 and you're saying at 65 they're still there it's just something that i guess we just have to deal with and i i I guess in a lot of ways the the running is is kind of the medical way that we treat that i guess in some ways right i absolutely it's I find that if I've got a problem, whether it's a, a, a twist in a novel that I can't get right, which is making me a bit grouchy, if it's something that I'm still dealing with from many, many years ago, if I go for a run within, I get the problem in my head and by a mile and a half, and you know that any runner would know the feeling that once you get about a mile and a half, you're in your space, you're in that rhythm. You've got to know if you're going to run a really fast day and you focus on that, you know, keeping along really quickly. Or another day, you're just in that place where you can run forever. Yeah. But if you focus on one thing, you can deal with those problems before the end of the run. And the longer the run, the easier those problems sort of get settled. The other thing to remember is there's something I don't like. Someone calls, calls these coping mechanisms. The trouble is with coping with something, it means it's always there. It's never cured. Mm. So now right now at 65 66 i'm going through cognitive behavioral therapy which i never believed in but now i do because i've decided not to be such a natural fool let's see what all the fuss is about and it gives you the ability to weigh things up at the end of this whether it be at the end of this year or or when i retire the stuff that i was coping with from childhood that's still with me it's just the same as carrying heavy bags you know you have to decide, you've got to put them down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the, the great Billy Connolly, uh, he's a great, I'm a great fan of Billy Connolly. He said, and he had a similar childhood from a lot of us like yourself, abusive, beaten, 
beaten down. He found his way through comedy uh, and pretty good acting. His uh, IQ is very high, but he's, um, he's learned to cope with that. And sometimes, forget the religious connotations, because I'm not religious in any way, shape or form. I've never lowered myself to that sort of thing. Yeah. Not, not since childhood. Yeah. But he said, sometimes you've just got to go up to someone and say, I forgive you. No, fuck off out of my life. <laughs> you don't have to forgive them and then and take it. It's literally that. Say, I forgive you. I've finished with you now. You're gone. I don't care what you do. You're gone. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's putting the bag down. I have to learn that. I don't know, Mike, if, if, if you managed to do that yourself yet. I'm still doing it. I put one or two down. But some of those things, how do you get that welded to your hands? And you've got to carry these weights with you. And sometimes you get so fit, you don't realize you're carrying that weight. So that's the part I'm going through now. Yeah. And that's, uh, I, I, it's, this is not specifically a plug for the book I'll, I'll be writing, Racing the Reaper Man. And it, it's about everything we've talked about. It's about what's happened to me, the differences in my body, how to adjust diet, how exactly what you said, how convention for meat. I've got to have my meat and all this stuff. You know, you're going to be weak and feeble. I'm, I'm addressing all that as best I can in, in, a lay, in layman's terms. I know scientists. And it's the same with mental health. In the middle of last year, I decided there had to be a chapter or a big section on mental health and mental well-being mm -hmm. and how running and our focus on that can actually transpose just the physical effort of running to get us into older age. We're talking about people of my age, at 65, that is no age to give up life. At 65, I can do everything I could do before, sometimes a bit slower, not yeah. quite so frantically maybe. And I can't see the reason why that can't go into the age of 70. So I've set my target before 70, I'm gonna run 100 miles. What am I gonna do after that? Well, I'm gonna up the ante after 70 and do bigger things. Yeah. And, and why? Because people say, oh, you'll be too old then. No, I won't. Wow. You know, you come and tell me that. You catch me first. Because I don't know where my limit is. And this is why I really like, um, I really like Dean Carnassus. He said, we are so comfortable, we're miserable. Mm. Now, Dean Carnassus is, is, is not my God. He's a nice guy who's able to put things into words far better than I can. Mm. And he's an ordinary guy who's discovered something that a lot of people have mm. and and i always think you walk down the street you see these big people with their big shorts extra 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 large stuffing burgers that could be an olympic athlete if this guy had the belief or this this girl whoever they are had the belief and the right focus these you're looking at people that maybe could run a 158 marathon yeah, seriously. Yeah, right. Because they've not reached their potential and they haven't got that. So what I want to try and do is say, look at me. I'm not special, but why not grow your hair when you're in your 60s? Right. Like yes, yes, yeah. I was scared of color. I used to wear uh, black all the time. And then uh, once I met Ange, Ange is an artist. She's a very good artist and she, she's able to construct beautiful colors. And she taught me two or three lessons. One, no one's ugly. I used to think, not an ugly person, but people are beautiful. They just were constructed differently. Yeah. She made me look at colors differently and myself differently. And the one thing she taught me, and you mentioned when you were a six-year-old child, your formative years, what do we do when a kid comes in with a picture that looks dreadful? We say it's great. And then eventually we say, actually, now you should be able to grow, 
draw the hog, the piggy better or the tree better. No, if you look at free art when you were a kid, it's fabulous. And that's what Picasso knew. He yeah. knew that the expression in art, the rules we give it as adults, distort what we want to do. And it's yeah. exactly the same for people. And that's what I'm trying to say is, I dress in colors now. And the weird thing is, I get very few yells from lorries and stuff. Yeah. Little old ladies stop me and say, oh, I love the way you're dressed. I dress the same when I'm on meetings for work and I'm, I'm getting this following of people saying, this guy's not a normal civil servant. He's lovely. <laughs> he talks kindly. We want to listen to what he's going to say. Yeah. So maybe I'm just going through my rock and roll years again. I don't know. But well, I tell you, the races are my favorite because the races are, it's like everybody, you know, the running community is just one big family. And so the races are so cool because everybody just wears whatever they want, does whatever they want. Um, and it's really, really cool. And I don't know how much of that they do in their own personal lives at work or anything like that, but it's this open, honest expression of who they are. And that's part of the thing that I love about the, the running community. And especially you see that at the races that everybody is wearing all the crazy colors, the funky glasses, the hats, the this and that. And I just love it. Um, so um, and there's another wonderful thing about the running community generally. Sprinters, maybe not so much, because they're far more aggressive and dynamic. Once you start talking to the running community, running community generally, people are far more peaceful and friendly and inclusive. There's, mm -hmm. there's the old knobhead, but we, we won't discuss it. But generally speaking, the trail and ultra group that I'm in, uh, I, I regularly get well over 500, once 5,000 likes because everything's positive. I say, look what we can do. Yeah. Or I say, what tape can I use for a toes? Because I've learned, I got one blister from the 32 miler the other, the other day. And, and lots of people said, well, I use this tape. So I'll do that. And I can learn and they can learn. So with, with the writing and everything you do and, and the novels that you've done, I, I wanted to ask you about that too, because I'm not at your level with, you know, the, the novels and stuff like that. But the other side of me is that running. So there's running and there's writing for me. And the writing, I guess I don't want to burden people with all my thoughts all the time. And so I've always put things on paper because I figured the paper is always there to listen to you. And nowadays, okay, fine, it's the computer. But I have, when I say boxes and boxes of, of spiral notebooks and stuff like that, I, I've written a lot of letters to my son. He's 12 that when he was, you know, a baby, two, three, four, I just wanted him to see where I was and what I, what my thoughts were and, and what my um, reflections on him were and everything that was in his dad's head. I dumped it out there and I don't know if he's ever going to read them or anybody's ever going to read any of the stuff, but I just know that once I write everything down and put it down, I just feel so much better that I've gotten it yeah. out. So I, I didn't know, I was curious like how you entered into the, or how I should say writing entered into your life. Was it the same kind of thing? or It's, was it's it exactly the same. This, this is a strange thing. We seem to, there seems to be certain triggers. What's Charlie. your last name? Is it Warren? It's not, comma, are we brothers? No, it's definitely comma. <laughs> <laughs> we well, of course we're brothers somewhere along the line. But ultimately, 
I learned to read at an early age. One of the things, I read my first novel, The Oregon Trail, the American book, The Oregon Trail, at the age of eight. I read that from cover to cover, then went on to novels, uh, A Zoo in My Luggage by a guy called Gerald Durrell, and lots of other things. I was reading things like The Three Musketeers, and I, I could, and I then I realized that at an earlier age, the magic of using a pen and seeing a word form that says a word in your head as you're writing, I found that magical. I've now got training logs that covers every single day of my life and every mile I've ever run from the 16th of May, 1982, 40 years in on the 16th of this month while I'm here of running. And I've got everything written down. I've got, I, I purposely didn't bring my running log down for the simple reason that uh, I don't, I, you can't see it on, right. a, on an audio. But I, in, in my running log, I've got the date, uh, the, whether I'm on holiday or not, uh, description of the route how I felt, the distance, how many miles I've walked this day, paces, how many calories, a balance of calorie over I've got so much in there, the sort of shoes I've worn, which ones, I've got codes in the front of shoes, uh, wow. and that's evolved over the years. So I love writing. I keep natural history diaries in handwriting. All my running logs are in handwriting, but I also write lots of stuff on iPad now, and I'm very well appled up. I use Microsoft. Microsoft better for documents, really, but I'm, I'm now forced to use Pages, and I'm forced to use Pages because it's on my iPad, and I suddenly realized that much as I dislike Pages, actually, once you get the hang of it, it's not so different than Microsoft. You just get used to stuff. Yeah. That, that's the other thing about older age. Don't worry about technology and yet learning new things. However, the written word is very important. I have stacks and stacks of books of writing and I think maybe one day my granddaughter's kids and my grandson's kids might pick all that up because my father left nothing and I had to do a lot of research. Yeah. Now, had he left lots of written words, I would have been swarming over it. And it's just, this is why the Egyptians knew the, knew the value of writing. If you notice, Pharaoh's names were always on these uh, these the walls and on these, uh, the, these great big poles they used to build and everywhere, all the hieroglyphs, because they knew that a good name lasts forever in writing. And quite often, if a pharaoh fell out of favour, then their name was expunged and taken away. And it's a way of saying, we were here. Mm. Cave, cavemen, Neanderthals, early humans used to write on walls. Why? Because mm. we're saying the same thing. I am me. This is part of me. This is my way of showing not the people around me, but the people in the future that I had something to say. And that's why we can now fly to the moon and, 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 and go to Mars and send probes right to asteroids and then come back because we write things down and we all learn. And every one of us stand on the sh shoulders of giants. The written word is incredibly important. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with being a diarist as well, because yeah. I'm the same. And I think it's <laughs> wonderful to look back at when I was 1982 and how I felt in this whole marathon I ran in 249. I had a photographic memory about pace, where I was, mileage and stuff. So I'm the same. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a convert. It's something people should do so they can look back at where they've been and plan where you're going. Yeah. It's funny, too, with um, your memory just talking to you sounds amazing. And it sounds like um, I'll give you another way we, we might have something in common is I remembered numbers. So I can go to a party or whatever it is and somebody can say, hey, I'm John. 
hey, I'm Mike. And three seconds later, I'm like, what was your name again? Oh. But if he, if he said I'm number 2478, 2478. And so like my running is the same way. I can tell you if you said, hey, how did you do in that race back in whatever of 2009, I could give you my time and I could give you the weather and I could give you, you know, the distance and all that stuff. And numbers kind of stick in my head. Yep. So, and I listen, some of the big tennis, the great tennis players out there, they have these crazy memories too, where they can say, oh, you know, back in Roger Federer, say, oh, back in 2006, when I was in the third set against blah, 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 blah. And it was 40 love and like crazy stuff. But yep. Some people just remember events and things based on numbers, you know, and it sounds like you're there. And I know I'm, I'm in that uh, realm. I've, too. I've, I've got a, I've, I, on my refrigerator at home, I've got a whiteboard, you know, these things you can wipe off. All my, I, I know a lot of neighbors, I keep forgetting their bloody names. So now I, I write them on the whiteboard and I remember them. And yeah. I literally, I did that the other day with someone called Jenny and I couldn't remember her name, but I've never, as you get older, you don't, you say, sorry, I've forgotten your name because I'm old. Mm -hmm. and people, oh, sorry, I forget as well. And then we remind each other. And I rush home and write it down. It's, it's like, I know a guy called Warren. I think I said to you the other day, I, I kept thinking your name was Warren. And that, <laughs> but it's not, that's your surname. So now I call you yeah. Mike. Michael doesn't stay. You're more of a Mike to me than a Michael. Yeah. Mike yeah. sounds, Mikey, that's very American. I was named, there was a, an, and, and I, I'll just, I know we're, we only got a few minutes left, but there was a commercial. My parents told me this, um, not too long ago, but my name originally, apparently I was going to be Paul Michael and they were watching the, I think it was, it came out, I guess the year before I was born, I was born in 74. And so life cereal had this commercial Mikey likes it. And so there was this kid Mikey in there and the older brother and Mikey tries the cereal and they're like, he likes it. Mikey likes it. They literally decided to flip it and call me Michael Paul based on that Mikey likes it cereal commercial. So there was no originality at all with it. Um, but anyway, so I don't want to take up too much of your time, um, but I did want to hit a couple other things. And by the way, you know, it's just it's really bothering me that you're in Greece right now. I know it's I said that at the beginning, but I'm so freaking jealous right now. But Excellent. anyway, um, so when does ultra running enter the picture? These longer distance, crazy events that these crazy people do that they're going to injure themselves. They're going to hurt their, you know, their knees, their feet, their heart. You shouldn't do that kind of thing. You're getting older and you decided to do this stuff. When did that happen? Well, that's sort of thing. There's two things. First of all, I'd reached the same phase as I was around about in 1982, looking at the marathon thinking, I wonder if I could do that. I could do that. Five, five six years later, I'm doing a 249. Could have gone past. It didn't reached roughly my feet and so once I got rid of that bad part of my older health and I was getting healthier my blood pressure was lowering my my, my food intake was better uh my passport too bought me a book called Ultra Marathon Man by Dean Canassus she suddenly reminded like this and I said oh that's, that's interesting <laughs> oh no it's something American I'm not really started reading it and put it down yeah. uh and and I got to the end of the book and that's when I realized that Dean Canassus okay He's a successful businessman. He does pretty well. He's got everything he wants. And suddenly realized, I don't want that anymore. It, I do, but it's not making me happy. So on his 30th birthday, he went out and ran that legendary 30 miles. And I thought, this guy's bloody mad. Hmm. Then I realized that 
my marathon is always going to be 10 minutes faster than his. So I'm a superior marathon runner than Dean Canassis. Dean Canassis is an ordinary guy. Physically, he's got special genetics. And I thought, what will happen to me if I run beyond the marathon? Then mm. I thought, oh, I can't do that in 60. I think I was 60 at the time. I thought, well, what's the rules about being 60? Then there's that bit of the journey where I've lost the rest of the weight and I'm down to 160, 164 pounds or something now, which is roughly my racing weight because I'm, I'm a pretty hefty guy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not built like a racing snake like myself, which I was. If I was three <laughs> inches taller and slimmer, I'd probably be, you know, I'd, I'd be up there in a two, two, 215 marathon bracket, but I never was. So I thought, what's my limit? Then when I finished the book, I thought, can I do it? So mm -hmm. I've done last year, uh, and, I, and just after the book, I went down the road and ran 30 miles on a loop course. I worked it out and I measured it on a map. I, I wasn't quite as technical then. And I ran it in something like six hours, 12 minutes. I thought, I've run 30 miles. Yeah. And then once I started talking to Martin last year on this journey, cut my weight right down. We planned to do a, a 50K race in May last year uh, because of all the lockdowns and what have you, it didn't happen. So we accurately measured a route on the same lap course and set it all up to test. His and my theories about physical strength. Uh, I, I, I could squat 185 pounds on the back. Wow. I'm slim. I've got strong legs. I went out that day to run just under six hours. Mm hmm. On the day I set out and I was clipping out sub tens and I thought that's a bit quick. And I carried on clipping out sub tens. Then I drifted a bit and then I even out around about the 10-10. I finished that 50k in 518.33. Wow. And I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I thought, that's madness. And yeah. I went through the marathon in, in 427. Okay, that's that's not that fast for younger people, but a 518.50k is wild. That's I mean, incredible. And then I thought, well, it, it works. At 60, that was at 64. Then directly after my 65th birthday, I ran a 50K on a very hot day in October. It was really hot. And I didn't really train for it because I'd been to Greece again. I'd never done a long run for four months over 12 miles. And I did 554 on that. And I was overtaking loads of young people at the end. And I thought, what is my limit? Yeah. So this year... <laughs> This year, I've got the same thing. So I've done this 32 miler three or four days ago, learned a couple of things, got through it, felt fine. It was mountainous to me uh, because it's part of the 100K I've got in June. And I've learned a few things, talked to you. If I've seen your 100, 100 miler, I've, I've got a few tips from you and lots of other people on the ultra group. So I think the 100K is going to be interesting. What I don't want to do is fail because I've got a blister or something or, or because I've not taken poles. I, I, I'll tell you what I carry a um, I, I, there's a there's a book on feet I can't remember I know the book yes I know the book there's something about no. just about feet it's just about feet and it's not a book you read cover to cover it's one used as a reference but I carry in my pack like for the the race I just did I carry some alcohol scissors um, moleskin for any any blisters that might pop up I bring a little uh, needle in case I need to, you know, pop any blisters or anything like that. Like I have stuff in there. And then at my, um, at the aid station, like the big aid stations where a crew can be and stuff like that. I have like a full tackle box, like a fishing tackle box where I yeah. have like different medical supplies and stuff like that. 
And I had this one runner come up to me, his wife actually, and he, she saw that I had this big tackle box and I, you know, everything was organized. And she said, do you have any moleskin and alcohol? And I was like, yeah. So I gave her some of the stuff because her husband had really bad blisters on his big toe. And so she fixed the blisters and she was really, really grateful. But the thing I learned is that, you know, through him was that, you know, carry a little pack like in a, in a Ziploc bag or something of some just bare essentials, some tape, some alcohol, maybe a pin or something like that. And then they yep. have the, the bigger stuff um, at, uh, you know, whatever aid station and stuff with your crew that you can get a little deeper into it if you need to. But yeah, that stuff is because that blister, I had one, I had one that I, I had a hot spot that I knew was going to be bad later on in that race. Yeah. And I knew that if I didn't knock it out, it was going to make or break me at the end. And I didn't want to do that. I don't so. do blisters or losing toenails. I never suffer from them. I, I, I wear in gingy socks, by the way. Mm. And, and since I've worn gingies, but one of my, I've got, I got arthritis in my big toe. So one toe goes over slightly. That's down to a motorcycle crash. Oh, so geez. now I've got to take one of my, I've had to take the same toe on both feet. And I think I'll be okay. But again, it's a learning process. Yeah. When I've run the 100K, if I've wrecked one part of my body that's not about training, then I learn. Then it's getting the vehicle with a better tire on it to the end rather than uh, yeah, physically. I, I think I can do it, but I, I don't know. I don't know what my limits are. I, one, of, one of those things before we finish, you know, there's two or three ambitions I've got when it comes to running. I want to run a race in America because I've only really been through Houston on the way to Ecuador climbing. And America is this, this vast country of madness. And I want to run a, I want, I'd, I'd love to run the Western States. That's what I'd love to do. Oh, I know. I, uh, I, 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 I'm not sure if I want to die there or what. So I may just take the gamble one day and, and put in for the lottery. But I want to find one, nothing like Hard Rock or Leadville, something relatively level but i'd love to run in the states because people i like all that whooping and stuff that we don't do in britain you know Woo, you're looking great man. and if i if i turn up dressed like i am i'll probably look like a local anyway all right here's or, my here's my new goal i just came up with whenever you come to, to run in the states i want to join you i want to do the same race with you well find me a reasonable not too rugged hundred miler unless we both get into the western states on, on the same lottery I'll just do it one day. I'll just enter it and forget it. And I know what'll happen. <laughs> there's, <laughs> I there's, oh. Yeah, there's a race I'm doing in November. It's called the Rim to River. It's in West Virginia yeah. and it looks absolutely gorgeous. And it's actually um, it's actually a qualifier for Western states. So, you know, I told my wife, I said, there's no shot I'll get in. I mean, I, I don't believe I ever would, you know, so, but there's a slight chance that I could. So, uh, you know, you never know. And if I did... I, the final story about lotteries, there's the, I, I collect malt whiskey. I don't drink much of it. I love malt whiskey. It's great. Mm -hmm. So as I've got this collection. And the best whiskey in the world is Sullivan's Cove from Tasmania. And I wrote to them and said, how do you get this stuff? Because you never buy it. Because they had released one cast as 280 bottles. Worldwide, everyone wants it. So we'll go to Japan, the States. That's it. He said, well, if you're on the mailing list, you can go in the lottery for each cast. And then you know, maybe you can buy, you can, you can get one that way. So went on the mailing list. The first one I put in for, I get a bottle. 500 pounds, including tax that cost me for one bottle of whiskey. What's that? $600? Uh-huh. And, and I thought, geez, what's the chance of that? So I don't drink it now. So I stored it away. You can no longer get this whiskey. 
And so I'm hoping that might pay my way to America. That'll so pay actually, for it, right? <laughs> yeah, it'll do it. You know, I'll get a couple of grand for this bottle. So, yeah. so my lack of drinking whiskey that I collect will probably pay for my ultra. But I promise, I'll make you a promise oh. that if I possibly can, I'll make sure my 100 is in America and it'll be not too difficult because it'll be my first one and I may die horribly. But I'd love to complete it there and uh, shake your hand at the end and say I, hello. I would, even if I go there to help crew you, I'd love to be a part of that whole experience. So keep me posted. Um, so are your, your, your 100K is coming up next month, right? 11th of June, yes, it's such a day. So walk me through gear, walk me through um, pack, handheld, walk me through gels, solid food, tailwind, no tailwind. What, what, tell me what you're bringing, at least now in your mind on this well, 100K. Luckily, it starts a, a, at a place called Goodwood. It's a horse racing course up on the South Down, which is not too far from my house. So the first is like, a, it's a figure of eight. The first figure of eight goes down to the coast which a lot of my posts on uh, Facebook will show me running on the coast. It fairly level, it's downhill, fairly level, goes past my house oh. and then ends up going up the hills and, and Goodwood again before the second hilly lap. So for the first lap, there's lots of, every six miles you've got an aid station with plenty of stuff. I'll be carrying tailwind, I'll be carrying block gels, more caffeine now because you said it's fine. Um, I'm going to try some solid food but I don't fancy it at the moment. Maybe at 60k I will. So I'll be taking ultimate direction uh, Anton Kapritschka uh, jacket to, uh, I don't know what you call it, 16 ounce, it's 500 mil plus yeah. masks. In yeah. there, I'm going to take the designated kit that I've got to have. I won't be having a handout. I don't even know what that is. I'll probably cut up a map or something, but apparently it's, everything's well marked. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not wilderness. This is West Sussex. It's, it's not out in the Adirondacks or anything, for Christ's sake. <laughs> this is West Sussex. You know, you can see Chitters do a cathedral from the route. So, so the, first, the first part, I'll be wearing ATR6 hockers because they're great multi-terrain shoes and there's, there's a bit of paved way and it's low-level trails. But at the drop pack, when I get into the course again to pick up bits after the first 50K, I think I'll change my shoes to speed goats. I will definitely change my socks again um, because I learned from the 32 that feet feel good. New pair of hawkers or one freshly laundered pair of good trail hawkers. Change them. Make sure the tape on my shoes are okay. Pick up my poles. Yep. And for the second really hilly course, which is come second, which is annoying. So that'll be speed goats. I've got a petrol head torch that lasts forever. One of the newer ones. Uh, that's for the second half because I'll be starting at seven and probably I don't know how long it's going to take. I can run 50k in 518. The 32 miler the other day, deliberately I slowed down, apart from the fact I've got this dodgy IT band that I'm working on on this break. Um, I, I deliberately kept it around about the 12 minute miles, 12 and a half minute miles, and got through that in well under seven hours, well under seven hours. I could have gone a lot faster. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I've predicted somewhere between 14 and 16 hours. I have no idea what's good. I think 100K is about this first one. Just finish and see what you can do. Learn, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so I've, got my, I've got my Garmin watch, my Instinct 2, which I love. It's got a, a really long battery. I've just changed this. That's military grade. Um, I'm not sure about compression socks. 
I, I used I to wear the compression sleeves, but I'm sort of, I've been running lately without them. I get a certain freedom that I don't think I need them. I don't think so. I don't know. I told you I screwed up. I, I, and by the way, the Hoka's, the, the Speed Goat 5s, I just got a pair of those last week. And when I hit mile 60, I was wearing Brooks, the, just the, the glycerins until then. And the Speed Goat 5s were my break the glass um, emergency shoe. And I will tell you what, when you put a fresh pair of socks, they were, I put more compression socks on and those speed goats, man, it felt so good. Um, I just, I just bought my third pair of speed goat fours because oh. they're going off the market here. You get your speed, speed goat fives are just coming out there. Yeah. But I've, got, they, I've got three pairs of speed goat fours. I've got a new whitish pair here uh, because they're, the best shoe I've ever worn in my oh. long. I'm wearing a pair of Brooks uh, Ghost Tens at the moment. But I've just retired, so I walk around it, and they're brilliant. They're still in great shape. I got yeah. these in 2017, 2018, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm purely hoka. You call it hoka? It's hoka une ome, isn't it? Because we mispronounce everything. It's probably yeah, hoka. Like it. It's yeah. We call it hoka because we butcher everything over here in the states. But I'm going to tell you what; those shoes are freaking awesome, and the um. Yep. Yeah, the compression socks, I don't know what to say. I think that might have messed me up in the end. I think compression socks might be better for recovery after a run, but not so much during a run. So Yeah, I'm, I'm drifting away from it. Um, yeah. I've got plenty of pairs of compressed sport ones. Uh, I wore them in my two ultras, uh, my two sort of proper ultras, 250Ks. I didn't wear them for the 32 miler. I think I need to start using poles on the on the lead bit in the second part of the marathon so that's and, and i've got to learn about drop bags and yeah. one thing i learned on the 32 i had tons of nutrition i had solid foods i had everything else but tailwind just blew me through it with with blocks but i don't know what happens after 50k what happens do i crave to eat a squirrel or something i don't know <laughs> will, I, will i end you up might. you might will i end up so- soiling my pants if i keep eating gels i have no idea <laughs> It always so going to be fun. I tell you one that it always cracks me up because even this one, I I had everything, the drop bags and everything, everything set, packed, and then it's so funny. At a certain point, you'll you'll find it. It's like you look at all this stuff that you brought, and you don't want any of it. And it's like, all right, what do they have at the aid station? Yeah, I'll eat some of their stuff. And you brought all the stuff that you normally love, but your stomach is like, nah, I don't want any of it. So it's like it's just weird. Well, the next time we chat, I'll be able to tell you exactly what happened. I'm sure it'd be quite amusing. I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, Paul, what I'll do is I'm going to put a link to your website and everything. Um, Thank you. And I want people to, you know, check you out and check out your your novels and and everything you're into because you're 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 a big inspiration, my friend. And um, thank you. I think that uh, the more all of us hear stories like yours. It's part of what keeps us going. So um, I can't thank you enough for. Oh, that's fine. It, my, my, my idea is to keep, to show you at 47, that it, into our 60s and into our 70s, you can keep going. And also to encourage, and this isn't just about people who, who's always run. It's about people who might have lost their way and think, I can't get back. It doesn't matter if you've ballooned up to 300 pounds. There is a way back. You can do it. And if I can do it, Sort of anyone can really but i'm here to help if anyone wants to drop me a line you can see it through my website or by, by a personal message on the uh, on on uh, facebook anything like that i'm happy to have a chat you know it's it's about 
there's not a lot of love in the world. The only, we only need one commandment, just be nice, you know? That's if it. you can not be nice to each other, it's going to be a better world anyway. That's it. Well, Paul, you're an awesome human being. Thank you for what you're doing for um, all of us runners out there and for the world in general. And look, I still hate you. I'm going to say it for the third time because you're in Greece right now. So enjoy Greece um, and recharge the batteries. And uh, I cannot wait to hear about this 100K. I'm really excited for you. So my blog will cover it. Uh, it'll be great to. It'll be great for people to read it. Uh, for, for my ego, I suppose. But uh, just stay in touch, as I know you will. If people want to get in touch with me, that's fine. It'll be interesting. Oh my gosh. Well, Paul, enjoy your day. Enjoy your uh, the rest of the stay in Greece, and uh, keep me posted. And thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Kelly Spira, as they say here. <laughs> we just say bye over here. I know. <laughs> Ch- cheerio. <laughs> Have a lovely day. All right, my friend. Take care. Take care. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Well, that was definitely one of my favorite uh, interviews thus far, and I hope you got something out of it. I, uh, I found in, in, in the time talking to him that it's really difficult not to be inspired um, in some way, shape, or form. Um, and if nothing else, at least get a good laugh in here or there. He, um, he's got all the attributes that a, um, not only a, a great ultra runner, but a great human being um, should have. He's got the humor, he's got the optimism, he's got the grit, determination, just the uh, the overall joy of, of life. So, a um, lot to be learned from this uh, amazing man. So, anyway, thanks for joining me again, and uh, I will talk to you real soon. Keep lacing up, keep inspiring.